the goal of that session is basically asking ourselves, challenging ourselves on whether we work on the right things to push our objectives forward. So the first thing I ask product managers to do in that session to review quickly where we stand with our objectives. My key question here is, what is your current confidence that we're going to achieve our OKRs by end of quarter? Put mm -hmm. a percentage there. I don't like the progress percentage. What's the progress? Because people always feel they make a progress till 90% and then you notice the problem type of thing. So I always ask about the achievability confidence. That's the metric I track about OKR. Welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast about closing the strategy execution gap and promoting outcome-driven cultures. I'm your host, Jenny Harold, VP of Product Evangelism at GTM Hub. Our mission is to prevent organizational hypocrisy. And inspired by the proven objectives and key results methodology, GTM Hub is the leading platform for strategy execution management for mission-driven organizations. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. When it comes to implementing OKRs, there is perhaps nothing more beautiful than a blank slate. Just ask my guest on this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Marcus Mueller, advisor, product coach, and consultant, shares the tech platform and tools he used to fuel hypergrowth at the kick scooter company Cirque, which went from a handful of people to a major micro-mobility player on the acquisition track in just 18 months. When he started in 2018, Marcus was entering a crowded field that demanded innovative strategies for leveraging data and managing teams toward achievable goals. A few of the things Marcus and I talked about. Product development strategy and implementation in a fluid, multinational company with distributed teams and competing priorities a framework for breaking outward and inward-facing teams into tribes, the role of OKRs in the strategy to product pipeline, how to structure stakeholder meetings that pinpoint progress, ensure transparency, and make room for necessary roadmap adjustments. And finally, Marcus is sharing the top four pitfalls he has seen companies fall prey to in the implementation of OKRs. Let's jump in. Today, I'm really stoked because I have Marcus joining me. We're going to talk about Cirque for a bit, which maybe some of you know about. So thanks for being on the show, Marcus. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so we're going to start with kind of the question everyone starts with. Who's Marcus? How'd you get here? <laughs> yes, I have spent my last about 10 years building products, building companies. Actually, my heart is all focused on entrepreneurship, but I ended up in product and realized that product is such an essential part of entrepreneurship. That's why I spent many years in, in product. I want to start my own company again at some point this year. And I've done a lot of consumer product management with companies like N26 or you mentioned Cirque in the kick scooter sharing space. And in the last two years, I have been consulting and coaching a lot of different early stage startups, founders, head of product, CTOs and product managers. And I'm currently running also a product management course for people who want to learn more about product discovery. Yeah, a lot going on. It sounds like you have a lot of experience. That sounds, I'm envious. Let's just put it that way. Because some of the names that you're spouting are pretty big, well-known names, especially here in Europe. But we're going to focus our attention on Cirque. Can you talk a little bit about when did you join the company? Because it has had a tumultuous history, right? All the way up into the end when it got purchased by Bird. But where did you join the company? At what size and scale of the life of Cirque? 
Yes, we're still trying to remember the year. I think it was 2018 during summer when mm. all the kick scooter hype started. I think the hype started with Bird in the US and then it quickly came over to Europe and like suddenly you had kick scooter sharing companies all over the place. I remember the peak was where we had 16 competitors in Madrid, so 17 companies in one city. That was absolutely insane. But coming back to your question is I joined... Cirque when there were about 15 people, I think officially I've been employee number four, but there were like some freelancers and supporters around. I met the CEO and founder, Lukasz Kadowski in summer 2018 for an introduction for a common like business angel friend. I was on the look for mobility opportunities because I wanted to start something in autonomous driving actually myself, but realized, oh, this might take a little longer till we see autonomous driving all over the place. So I'd rather get some experience in mobility first. And yeah, that's why I was intrigued by the opportunity to join a mobility B2C, but still also like very operational, intense business. And I joined them as the first person in product and tech. So at that time, we had a little agency building the MVP or a prototype version of the product. And I joined them in and we started to build an in-house product and tech team. And I was the first person on board to take that ownership and build the data design, engineering, and product team. But then I brought a, on a CTO on board about five months later, something like that, who took over all the engineering side because I think I'm okay enough like to, for the first few hires but or for the first few things, but I'm not engineer enough to take the difficult engineering decisions. I like to focus on product and I can do design the things on the side, but I like to focus where I'm best in. Let's talk about then product, because I think it's good to demystify this because we're talking micro mobility. When people think about Cirque or Bird or Lime or any of these companies, they think about the physical kick scooter that they see on the streets. But when you talk about product, what does that exactly encapsulate? That's a very interesting example because the product is actually a service. It's a mobility service. In that service product or service experience that customers have, you have multiple pieces that need to work seamlessly together so you can have a great experience. You have on the one hand side, obviously, the scooter that is a physical product that people need to be able to use. Then you have the IoT that is embedded into the scooter SIM card and the IoT unit that allows the communication between the scooter and the cloud. Then you have the mobile application that is itself the consumer product where consumers basically unlock the scooter, pay, manage their previous rights and subscriptions and stuff like this, which is the digital part of the product. And then we had a lot of digital products in the background enabling to efficiently and effectively run the operations because the operations are also a central part of the service. If operations do not work, the scooters are not at the spot where customers would expect them. They are not at the spot where customers would use them or if operation is too slow, then you have a lot of uncharged empty battery scooters out there which results in very disappointing customers or you have broken scooters out there which results in disappointing customers. Or you have the scooters in places where no one actually needs a scooter. So the hardware, software, and the operations need to perfectly work together so you have a great service experience. My key responsibility was the software side for the consumer and for the operations tools that we've built. And we have also done the connection to the IoT. Initially, we had the IoT part outsourced. We influenced heavily the scooter design, and we basically defined the requirements, but we had a company 
doing the actual design and engineering for the physical scooter. We brought more and more things in-house as we like, grew. That's a very short summary on this front and how the product looks like. So then when you talk about growing and scaling your product organization, which covered the application that people have on their phones, plus this IoT, this connection to the cloud, how did you think about shaping and growing and scaling your product team and then how did that look also on the engineering and the design teams? Because from our previous conversations, it sounds like you had a very traditional kind of product design engineering triad that was working together to produce these solutions for your customer base. So how did you think about, yeah, the specific charters for each of these teams as you started to grow? To give the context, from the point we started to the point we got acquired, it was about one and a half years. So we grew from zero to about 80 people in the product and tech team in these one and a half years. I can describe a little bit how the team setup was in the first couple of months and then the ultimate state, or the, I would say, really well-working oil machine that we had like after one and a half years, which then got acquired and Bert shut the whole thing down because they had no needs for additional tech people in mostly Berlin. When we started, we basically built only two cross-functional teams. One focus on consumer, on like the customer app and, and, and all the consumer experience, and one that covered everything for the operations tools. So we have basically two teams. I product managed one, and then I brought another product manager on board doing the other. And then at some point I hired another PM handing it over. And basically along that split, we have grown the product team. At the end, we had about eight or nine teams. And we have, you could say, three tribes. So one was still consumer, but within that consumer tribe, we had three squads. One focused on the growth side, so product marketing, you could say, or acquisition. So their core goal was being a counterpart to the marketing team to make sure we can acquire new customers and have a good experience till first. Then we had a team that focused on retention, meaning like customers can successfully come up and do one ride after another one. They were closely working with our customer service team as well to make sure like the right experience is just great. And then we had a third team in that squad that did partner integration. So basically offer our API to other companies that wanted to integrate our data. So that was consumer. So everything basically outward facing customers. And then we had still the tribe around operations where we had a split in basically three internal target groups, you could say. One was focused on field operations. So those are blue collar workers that go around the city with a van and collect scooters or service them, toy scooters, service them. So they had a, a mobile yeah. application and that was one product. So one squad around that, one squad around the fleet managers problems. So these were folks sitting somewhere in an office or a warehouse on the desktop. So it was a more desktop focused experience looking at the fleet as a whole, like how many scooters do I have? At what point? We had at the end, 40 different warehouses, 40 different locations in 12 countries. So there's a 40 of these users that were looking between 200 and 1,000 or 200 and 3,000 scooters per city as their fleet and manage the fleet. And then we have a third customer that is the warehouse itself. So we build a warehouse management solution. That was, again, a mobile application where field operations folks brought the scooters back into the warehouse. And then we had to sort to decide what to do with that scooter. Does it need to go to repair? What kind of repair? Do we need to wait for spare parts or can it be repaired right away? Does it need to be charged? Once it's charged, 
where do we bring certain scooters? So it was the bridge between basically the fleet managers and the field operations folks. That was the last part we built. These are the two tribes that started as two squads. And then it became like we split it in small things as we grew. And every of these squads have their dedicated product manager, engineers, designer, and we had deeply integrated data folks. And there was the third tribe that was basically a platform. And that's something that didn't exist at the beginning. It was just handled by both of the others right from the beginning. But then at some point we made it explicit. And that was all the connections to the IoT, some of the business logic that was being used by both of the verticals. So it, the platform was more on horizontal. So payment system, for example, being used both by operations and by a consumer. These things were on the platform side and also the data platform was on that front. So that was the third tribe more. And we always considered that third tribe as their customers are the other two tribes. So the, those product managers in there, like they need to talk with the other product folks to understand what do they need to deliver for them so that they can be successful achieving their objectives. That's a good segue because it sounds like you had very clear ideas about how the team was going to be structured in these tribes. And they had an idea in their mind of who their customer was. Something that I thought was really interesting is that we had discussed previously that perhaps at different points during your experience with Cirque, the company strategy all up may not have been very clear, but the product strategy was pretty clear. Can you discuss like how that came to be and then how you were able to formulate a product strategy in absence sometimes from direction that came from the executive leaders? Yeah, so the scaling of that company was just insane. We grew to over 1,000 people in one year, which was heavily blue-collar workers-driven or operations-driven. As I said, we had about 80 people in tech and in the headquarter in Berlin, about 300 people marketing. And so the normal ratio and the rest was like all in the countries. Folks running the warehouse and operations and maybe one or two local marketing managers. The company grew so quickly. It was really hard to do the alignment and make sure everyone understood what is the focus, which country is the focus, which country is more of a priority or less of a priority. The communication was really challenging. It was sometimes not mm. so clear for us to say, okay, which country is actually a priority? Because sometimes it was said that this country is more of a priority, but then you have a local GM who shouts louder towards the CEO and then suddenly say, hey, like I thought this country was not such a priority and now we should do something for them. That's what made it sometimes hard to have this consistency. But what we tried together very closely together with our CTO, we were just running our little business inside. We had good relationships with some of the key stakeholders in the country, some GMs, some head of operations, or also within the organization. We established OKRs very early on because I, I benefited a lot from the OKRs in any company I work with. Basically, from almost day on, one on, I had OKRs for our team and we made it really a, a clear process over time. And we tried to use these OKRs to communicate the strategy to our product and tech organization. And the way we've done it was always like at our OKR planning cycle, I was sending our product managers on the mission to talk to their stakeholders, gather feedback, and then create a draft of the OKRs or the objectives they see being the most important one for the quarter. So we co-created them with other folks in a company or with other people in a company. And at some point, even some other department said, we would want to do this OKR thing, what you do as well, because it seems to work really well. So we used that to communicate the strategy on a quarterly level. 
And I used the structure of the organization to communicate the strategy on a more broader level to say, okay, we have a strategic focus on the consumer side, on the operation side, and on the platform side. And we de-slice the teams in a way that we say, okay, these are customers that have a certain importance for us. And each of the tribes or even each of the squads somewhat defined a little bit like what is their purpose? We had a purpose for them defined and saying, okay, what is the strategy within our tribe or squad? And we worked that out together. And as a head of product with the CTO together, we steered it by saying, okay, how many resources do we deploy in which field? Like we say, okay, maybe next quarter we need to staff up the team on the operation side because this becomes more important. Challenges are, are strategically more significant. So we need to staff up that team more than other teams so they can have a faster run through their roadmap. So we basically had three different roadmaps for each of the tribes. And we basically steered the run through on that roadmap by how many people and squads we were enabling these people to try to have. To sum it up, the strategy was maybe not as explicit on a high level, like we had clearly defined of who are your different customers and I had basically one deck that summarized this all. And this was my onboarding deck saying, who are the different customers? What are their core problems? What are the core needs? How do we try to serve them? But the organization that we designed defined like how we work against that strategy and the OKRs defined what we actually, how we measured progress along the way. We basically summarized that on one roadmap slide that we updated once a month or every two months. We had a roadmap pipeline that was really organic, changing every two weeks. And then a summary, basically, that we put on a slide, rather high level, saying, okay, there are four quarters. We focus this quarter in this tribe, mostly on that part. Next quarter, we think we're going to focus mostly on this part. So we basically summarized it in one slide to say, okay, that is the high level focus I would rather say focus because for me, strategy is deciding what you do versus what you not do. And that's most helpful usually. Yeah. So let's talk about where there's a lot of things to go with this. I think we can go, but let's talk from strategy to this roadmap pipeline, right? Because I've been talking with some folks about should the OKRs define what happens in your roadmap or vice versa. But it sounds like in your universe, you defined what outcomes you wanted to achieve with the team, with the knowledge of the three different areas. This is what needs to happen for a consumer. This is what needs to happen for operations. And this is what needs to happen for the platform. Okay, great. This is what we want to improve here. Let's start to craft some OKR so we can define what success looks like. And from there, let's talk about the roadmap. Let's talk about the roadmap then. Um, this is a really interesting term that I don't think I've come across before, which is this roadmap pipeline. What is that? And how did you derive this? Just to confirm your point. Yes, I'm thinking it from objectives first. That's always yes, my approach. That's right. But Outcomes first. Like vision, which is the most long-term, uh, most unconcrete type of objective. And I break it down further in like annual objective. I recommend company have a mission OKR, so to say. That is a six, 12 to 18 month OKR. That's a mission OKR or a NOSTA metric. One of the two gives you a kind of a midterm number of numbers you focus on and then break down into a quarterly outcome focus OKR. And that's for me, the most important one, like saying, okay, want to measure outcomes with the OKRs. And the roadmap is then a board of bets that we take, which we believe are the bets that will help us deliver against these objectives. The term roadmap is difficult because you may also say, I have an objective roadmap saying, what's my core objective per quarter? 
Then it's mm. also kind of, you could call it a roadmap and then it's an outcome-based objective roadmap. Saying main objective this quarter is acquisition, next quarter will be retention, the quarter after will be, I don't know, customer satisfaction in a given sub-segment. So you may create a roadmap that is purely based on that. But that's why I'm differentiating a little bit when I say roadmap, we have different levels of roadmap. We have okay. this summary slide, but it's basically just showing what's going high level. But for me, the core essential part is this roadmap pipeline. It translates the objectives into concrete things we do. And that roadmap pipeline is basically a Kanban board, very simple Kanban board. You can use whatever Kanban-based tool you want to use. And I call it pipeline because I want to keep it organic. I don't like roadmapping where people say, yeah, once a quarter, I define my roadmap, and then I work through that roadmap for one quarter. So you didn't that, really have a, a like a firm backlog that kept growing because that happens a lot in organizations. We have this backlog, and the thing with backlogs is nobody deletes things from backlogs, it feels like. They just keep adding things, and eventually you have, I don't even know how many lines in there, and people look at it and they're like, are we ever going to do any of this stuff? So you didn't really have that. It sounds yes. So that's the key difference. I want to escape that trap of having this long backlog where you think you need to do the discovery on all of the things and you can't do it. So you just pull whatever feels best from that backlog and work on it. And that's what I want to avoid with my approach. And the first thing to make it work is what I said, outcome-centric objectives. Second thing is you need to split the engineering backlog from the, let's call it roadmap pipeline or idea pipeline or whatever mm. problem pipeline, whatever you want to call it, opportunity pipeline is my favorite term. But I see a lot of people managing their ideas and opportunities and so on in their engineering backlog, in their JIRA backlog. They have like somewhere down the backlog, they have a lot of empty tickets, huge tickets like features, and then mixed up with bugs and small improvement tasks and stuff. Like I always tell them, keep your new things, new implementations, projects. Somewhere features. else. Put it somewhere Put them else. Out of your engineering backlog. Like engineering right. backlog should be user stories, bugs, some engineering tasks that don't things that the engineering story. team then actually can take action on. Exactly, and some of them yeah. might not be finally groomed and so on, and or a, a little placeholder to not forget. But those are like they are so had somewhat of a validation, and they are at some point you're gonna work on them, and they are sliced in a meaningful size. So that's one thing to keep these two things separate. And then the roadmap pipeline is a Kanban board, and the first two columns for me are the first column is new opportunities, or you can call it new ideas, problems, opportunities, whatever you want. And everyone can contribute to that. And that's why for me, it's important to use a very simple tool that the company uses anyway. In Cirque, we used Asana okay. in all our operations team and in all our business teams. So we used Asana for that, even though we use Jira for our operational day-to-day -day product work and the product engineering backlog wasn't, product engineering backlog wasn't Jira. But the first column is just new opportunities. Everyone can drop in new opportunities. And the big difference is to avoid this to be a, a backlog is once a week, you do a quick opportunity assessment. The ownership with this lies with the PM owning that field this opportunity belongs to. In our case, we had the three tribes. We had three such Kanban boards. At the beginning, it was one, but at some point, we had to split it in three because people didn't care so much about the stuff on the <laughs> consumer side and right. vice versa. So there's... There's this opportunity assessment or pre-assessment, initial assessment, whatever you want to call it. And one PM knows the director or lead for the tribe knows they are responsible once a week to clean up the idea backlog or the new opportunities column. As in, we and will invest to do discovery or we won't thing? Exactly. That, what they okay. do is they do a pre-prioritization on when they're going to do a discovery on this thing. 
Got it. That, that it's purely gut feeling based. And it takes maybe 10 minutes, maybe five minutes, maybe up to an hour. It can take an hour if there's a request from a customer or an operations employee that you just literally don't understand. So I don't understand what it says here. So let me quickly call this person and understand what they were trying to say. I don't even understand what it's just said here, explained here. And what this PM does in, at that point is take that opportunity and ask three questions. First, what is the impact on our objectives? What do I believe is the impact on the objectives with this thing? What is the expected effort to deliver that impact? And what so is that's the number expected two. confidence on that? So a simple ice scoring. It's an ice scoring, yeah. ice in a very simple way. I, we had rice in the beginning, and I felt like ice is actually even simpler. It's like straightforward. That, those are the three questions. What's the ratio? And always looking at the objectives of this quarter and saying, okay, how can we have an impact here? And then put it either to classical later, next, now, or not in the next six months or mm. 12 months. And we didn't say reject. We said not in the next X month. Because it's so much easier to pull something into the not in the next six months column and also accept that instead of a reject. Because it might not be a permanent reject. So let me give you an example. So if you come up and say that someone in, operation, uh, in marketing says we need a referral system. And you say, yes, referrals is a great idea. Almost every company is somewhat, it makes sense to build a referral system. But if organic growth is not your priority right now, it's just not a thing you should work on in the next three months or maybe even six months. So you pull that idea into not in the next six months and say, it's a great idea, but just not a priority for us in the next six months. And every quarter we went through the not in the next six months backlog and did a quick check and say, is there something that might become a priority right now? Then we, let's pull it back to the first column. And the same was true for everyone in the company. Everyone could bring up new arguments on an item and say, I have new data, I have more data, or I have good arguments why you should do a reassessment of that item now and pull it from not in the next six months back into the first column. And the later next now was defined by when do we do a discovery. And the now for that reason was split in two. It was now discovery, now delivery. So we really specifically differentiated between the two. So you could never pull an item directly into delivery. You always go through a discovery process, even though if you don't explicitly have a discovery process, then it's at least one person sitting there thinking through some basic things. And we had work in progress limits defined for discovery and next column. So the longest column on the list was later and not in the next six months. And okay. on, we had a VIP limit based on the team size, like for example, discovery two items. You can only have two items in the discovery. And every item needs to go to discovery first before it can go to delivery. And even if it's there for just a day or half a day or whatever, like someone explicitly thinks about the concept of research work that needs to be done. And, and this was to prevent kind of people being too overly ambitious about what could be attacked in any sprint period, I imagine. And the other thing I guess you're saying is by putting these constraints, it helped the teams prioritize and focus on exactly the items. And then lastly, it probably helped with capacity to figure out how much exactly load they could take in any given period, because you were monitoring pretty closely. Like, actually, we had to here for this, but they were able to get it out in half a week. So if we see stuff like this again, then maybe we need to define scope a little bit better or something like that, something like this. That's really interesting. 
Yeah. Cool. I think it's very important to make discovery more explicit. So otherwise, it's always hidden and people don't talk about it. And discovery is very time consuming. If you get better at it and if you have good tools. Fine, but you it, still want to time box it like everything else. Exactly. You want to time box it and you want to at least say explicitly, we don't do discovery on this thing because we don't have right. time. But then you have at least explicitly decided to not do it. Exactly. And that's why I think like, the first thing is you pre prioritize when to do discovery on, on one thing. And this opportunity assessment is gut feeling based because you just don't have time to run discovery on all the items in your backlog. So you do a gut feeling based and maybe you have some data and then the confidence number level goes up, which sure. means you push up the likelihood that you prioritize something, you pre-prioritize. And I'm always telling people, as long as it's in the discovery column, it may still be dropped. So mm. if you run this discovery and you may figure out in discovery that you thought it's important and going to have so much impact or it's little effort. And, and you, you find out, out no one cares. Oh my God, it's so, it has a zero impact or a huge effort. Or, right. And you may only do part of it or you don't do it at all. So until it's not in delivery, don't be certain that it will so ever be come to suspicious. Interesting. Um, Cool. So that's why it's very important to separate that. So we created more, a better expectation of what does discovery mean? Like it's still it, in this phase, we're going to take a close look into this topic. We're going to do user research. We're going to test and experiment on this topic. And there might result something out of that. We might drop it. That's after discovery, we're going to know way, way more. And this is the idea of pre-prioritizing uh, things. And I have in that roadmap pipeline a mix of sometimes concrete feature ideas, sometimes just problem descriptions, such as I want to decrease the error rate when unlocking a scooter. It just really is such a problem. Or sometimes a metric. We want to increase customer satisfaction with, within that country or so. Or sometimes it might be a concrete feature idea that was dropped into the backlog, such as I want to reserve a scooter. And then it's fine for me. Like I'm not dogmatic on this. We, in the discovery, we want to go deeper into and try to think, okay, what is the underlying problem? And are there other ways? How would we measure it? There was mm. a reason why this came up. We take the input from folks. We try to, in the pre-assessment, we already try to put in a more opportunity problem framing. So people, and we try to ask them, maybe I'm thinking, hey, why do you think that's important? And then in the discovery, we're going to go deeper oh. on this topic. So then how do these... Do these questions that you're asking yourself. And then obviously there are, these are metrics. These are hard metrics that you can carve out. And this happens in discovery, which I think is awesome. How does this relate back to the overall objectives that you had set? Thank you for the question, because it's very important. This thing can only work, this approach, if you have a roadmap check-in every two to three weeks. You can define for yourself for the platform tribe, you did it only three every three weeks. For the other two, we had it more than two bi-weekly basis. And that roadmap session is driven or is owned by the product person that is the ultimate owner of this board. That's so in our case, the director for the given area. And we had all product managers of that tribe in that session. We had the engineering leader of that tribe and we had the design leader and then the CTO myself and one or two crucial stakeholders like for Consumer was sometimes a CMO or CEO of operations. So we sometimes invited stakeholders to that session. And the goal of that session is basically asking ourselves, challenging ourselves on whether we work on the right things to push our objectives forward. So the first thing I ask product managers to do is in that session to review quickly where we stand with our objectives. My key question here is, what is your current confidence that we're going to achieve our OKRs by end of quarter? Mm -hmm. Put a percentage there. I don't like the progress 
percentage thinking what's the progress because people always feel they make a progress till 90 percent and then you notice the problem type of thing so i always ask about achievability confidence that's the metric i track about okrs so like they're forecasting in their mind whether or not they're going to make it yes Got it. they give it like how, if you bet a thousand euro like what's the likelihood that you're going to get some return on this and because then that's the interesting information for me is saying okay last week you said 95 percent, and now and this week you're at 50. what happened how can we bring this back on track? It's much more interesting information than if I hear every week, yeah, we gotta make, we made progress, we made progress, we made progress till it's the 90% problem where you're stuck for weeks. And so the first 10 minutes in a meeting is give me an update on the OKRs. Where does the team stand on the OKRs? And then give me a 10 minutes update on what priority changes have been made on the roadmap pipeline in the last two weeks. Basically, uh, give me an update. Tell me, okay, what is the update on the delivery column saying, hey, yeah, we shipped this one. This item here is slightly delayed and we started on this one. Give me an update on the discoveries. Okay, that's the story discovery was finished, but didn't result in a project we're going to work on because of this and this reason. So really short to the points. Very hard to manage that meeting really well because it needs very crisp and clear communication, good preparation. But once PMs do this, it can be very beneficial. And they give a quick update on discovery and then they give an update on basically next, later, and not based on what has changed. So saying, hey, we have eight new requests in the last two weeks and two of them were assigned to next because of that reason, two of them later, and I don't know, the remaining ones not. So give a quick update and then you have 30 minutes for the audience to challenge the decisions by the PM. Saying, okay, I want to challenge this. I think this thing should not be in next, but in later because of that reason. So you cannot challenge the delivery column. It's like too late, except there's very important new information. You may discuss the discovery column, but not in detail because then you'd rather have follow-up discussions. For me, it's always a key question I'm meeting. Do we work on the right things or on the things that have the highest chance to bring us closer to deliver against our objectives? And that's a discussion you have with this team, with this sounding board. That is helping you. The PM may say, hey, for those two items, I have taken a decision, but I don't know. I need your feedback. I need your feedback whether you think it's really the next thing we should work on because actually our certainty is not so high or whatever, we are missing this context. So that's the discussion. And I think if a PM is able to run the session well, that can be a very effective way to manage the roadmap with contribution by different people. And I'm always bringing it up in the point to say the PM is a facilitator of the roadmap in this case. Like PM takes a pre-prioritization decision, but is facilitating the discussion. And every time they take a decision, they also leave one sentence in the comments for that item. So you have a little documentation of why it was put somewhere and like priority has changed and so on. What was the yeah, the expectations behind that change? So it's transparent for everyone in the organization what you have decided. Okay. So I'm going to zoom out. I like doing zoom ins because we zoomed in a lot there and that's awesome. Let's zoom out a bit. In the very beginning part of this conversation, we had discussed kind of the shape of each of the teams. And you mentioned that there's a data person that's associated with each of the teams. Let's talk about this role. How do they play into, it seems obvious now having described everything in terms of your process and some of the ceremonies that you have, I'll call them that. But let's get real. The data people are hard to find, one, and two, they're expensive, but they're super valuable. I think we know that. But can you describe their value to each of these delivery units, these tribes that you call them? 
what were they about? What did they do? How did they contribute to advancing value, either to the business or the customer? Cirque was a company that benefited, or the scooter space benefits a lot from the data work. You collect so much data. And if you better understand where to position a scooter, if you're good with demand prediction, for example, it gives you an immediate huge business benefit. In N26, I felt we have not integrated data well enough into the tech and product team right from the beginning. It was always a little bit of a silo. And then there was a data scientist working on something, but engineers didn't have the same priorities. So he created great stuff, but it was never brought to life. And then analytics and data engineering was always either lagging behind because they didn't have the information they needed from product and tech. So something was... They didn't have actionable insights is the problem, right? It was like data was a bit of a silo in the organization. I Mm. wanted to change that. With Cirque. Cool. I said from the beginning on, we want to deeply integrate this cross-functionally into a team. We had three different roles, analysts, scientists, and engineers. We had a group of 80 people with four data engineers, about four or five data scientists, and two or three analysts. Like quite a large data team because it's a very data-centric business. And every of the squads had one data person assigned to them, depending on what the needs of that squad was. So in operations, it was mostly data scientists that help them build data features, I call it, like things like demand prediction, where should I position a scooter? Or a routing algorithm, like what is a smart way to collect scooters? Or looking into like, how can we predict or understand whether a scooter is broken or not from ratings and stuff, where should you turn it off the system or take it off the system? So they did a lot of data science work, for example. But we had one squad that was more around payment and subscription. In that squad, it was more about analytics. At some point, it would have been about science. It's very complex data we collect on the payment and fraud side and on the pricing side. But actually, the challenges are mostly data analytics challenges, very complex data analytics challenges. So we had a data analyst more closely working with that team. And in another team that was more on the marketing side, there were mostly data engineering problems, like how do we connect the tracking end-to-end to make sure we have all the data we need to our dashboards for the marketing team, so on, on we're up to date. So depending on whatever the team needs were, we assigned the given data person that was then responsible for the whole data topic. Like sometimes the scientists did analytic stuff or classical analyt- and data analytic stuff or a little bit of engineering support. But they were owning the responsibility and they were working 30 to 90% for the squad. And the remaining work was done for the data. There was still kind of a central data team where the, all the data folks met regularly and had their own data backlog. But it was clear for every data person that squad first, and if they need more time with the squad, then they need to communicate this back to their data team. So that was basically a central, decentral approach. We had both central data team, which I think the engineers, data engineers were mostly in that central team because they do a lot of the infrastructure work. The scientists and analysts were really embedded mostly in the teams. And so the PMs always had a data sparing part person. So to say, okay, how do we track this? What will we track? How can we understand this? So data folks were listening to problems, understanding, okay, what are the challenges? So they didn't join all the scrum and ceremonies the team had, but they joined some of the groomings, every second stand-up. So they were part of the team, and I let that over to the PMs to decide like how much they want to involve them. But I don't want to hear any complaints, and I don't have the resources, I don't have the understanding, I don't talk with the data folks that you have, and they're going to figure it out with the data team. Like 
I want to empower the PMs to have everything they need to deliver end-to-end. And I feel that data in CERC was crucial to do that. Okay, we're going to zoom out even more now. This is fun. So you have been a fan of OKRs for a long time. You mentioned that you'd worked with them in N26. We're going to spend some time talking about what you have learned in terms of their pitfalls or where it doesn't work or things that people should look out for based on your experience. We're just going to, we're going to dish. Let's dish on, this is when it it looks wrong. This is when it goes sideways. (laughs) I think it's actually fun, Marcus, to reflect on these periods because I think we can learn a lot. So tell us, what have you learned from your experience at N2E6 or other companies where you've had OKR experience where you're like, Jenny, this was bad. Here's why it was bad. Here's what I learned about it. This is what I would suggest moving forward as a result. And this is what I wove in to even like your current consulting practices, having those learnings. Yeah. Marcus Dish, I want to hear it. Number one, and you probably expect that, is really outcome over output. And that's so hard for people to understand. It's so hard. I just had a coaching client before our conversation and I reviewed the OKRs with him. It was the fourth time we did it and 85% were really good outcome-centric ones, but he had one feature, really like a feature, build a tutorial and have 100% of users go through a tutorial. And I said, yeah, you tried to make this output one outcome-centric, but actually it's an output. Because you just write down a feature that like you never know. People might go through the tutorial, but still don't understand how to use your product. So this outcome over output was, for me, it took quite some time and I'm very thankful for the CEO of N26 who hammered that into us, like always challenging us and said, that's not outcome first. That's an output centric one. We had a lot of chaos with the N26 OKRs, but that was one thing, a really like a positive one. And it took me, I don't know, half a year and many times being challenged by him till it made click. And then I understood, okay, like outcome. I see suddenly see OKR is very different. And the reason why it's so important is it's so much more likely that you predict outcomes correctly than outputs correctly. If I think, okay, in the upcoming quarter, that's the three features that matter. It's very likely you'll be very wrong because things happen. You learn as you start working on a feature, except if you have front-loaded all research perfectly, which doesn't make sense. You're too slow in a waterfall type of system. Then you may be able to predict a features outcome more in a better way. But usually that doesn't happen. So predicting the right features is very unlikely. So you're going to start your quarter and you start working on feature one and suddenly you realize, oh, that feature doesn't make sense. So your OKRs are meaningless if you have feature-based OKRs. And then you say your OKRs, was, like you say, yeah, OKRs don't work for us. That's stupid. You just had shitty OKRs. That's the problem. But if you define an outcome, such as I want to increase conversion, decrease churn rate, increase a certain satisfaction metric, it's more likely that this outcome stays relevant for the whole quarter. It may still change. So there might be a change happening mid of quarter where you say, oh, I realize acquiring that type of customer group doesn't matter to us anymore. And then you may drop the OKR or may change it, but it's much, much less likely. So you can be flexible with your output. So the activities you do, And that's an output, so calling a customer, releasing a feature, and an outcome is the result of that activity. Decrease in churn rate, increase in conversion, converting a customer, that is an outcome. So that's the first thing people really need to learn. And there are good videos on YouTube on like how to do that. You need to hold yourself accountable. 
if you'd only do one thing, that's the one thing, but it's the hardest thing to change. And then I've seen a lot of people struggling with the timing. And we have messed it up many times in Entry 6 and also other companies at Thirk we had. I was really aware of that, so I managed that tightly. So one week before end of quarter, you realize, oh, we need new OKRs. You want to balance how much to involve the team versus how fast should we go and clearly make things. So that's that because Nate needs more time to involve the team, needs more time to review everything and so on. At some point, we had an entry exact like one month into the quarter and we presented quarterly OKRs and everyone was, okay, we are mid of quarter already. Why do we present it now? So managing the timing is very hard. And that's why I feel our best is a mix of top-down and bottom-up, not purely 100% bottom-up, not purely top-down. So finding a good mix. I personally won't do individual OKRs anymore. We tried that at N26 at one point. It was just crazy overhead. It just didn't pay off. Not for tech teams. Maybe for teams in marketing, sales, where you can pinpoint the individual contribution better to the whole thing. I just felt that individual OKRs were a distraction for most people. Rather have really good team OKRs and have everyone really assigned up for that than just messing around with this. And a typical beginner mistake I see is over-engineering it. Sometimes I, I see companies coming to me and saying, hey, we have introduced OKRs. And they come with 10 OKRs, five key results each. No one can manage it. It's so much. It's complete chaos. I always tell them, like, start very limited. Start with two like, I remember when we started in 26, it was like one OKR for one quarter, only company-wide. And then the next quarter, we had three OKRs for the whole quarter, for the whole company. And then next quarter, we introduced department OKRs. And then actually, we, next quarter, we introduced everything, department, and then like it failed. And then we went back to department and company OKRs. And in quarter four, we introduced the annual OKRs and the quarterly OKRs for company level, not for team level. It was only quarterly. So... Start slowly. Don't like over-engineer it right from the beginning. That's another one that I see very, very frequently. And the last one that's very hard and I almost never see is prioritize your OKRs if you can. That's a very, very difficult exercise to say, if I have three OKRs, which one is the most and least important one? This, people will anyway prioritize it somehow during their work. And then it's just everyone takes their own prioritization decision. Say, oh, I feel that OKR 3 is more important because this is where I will have I enjoyed that one more, whatever reason. So as leaders try to define which OKR is more important than the other one. And it's okay if that priority changes over the quarter and say mid-quarter realize our tool needs to increase priority, then you communicate it to everyone. They can adjust their, to their tactics, but make the priority explicit because otherwise everyone has a different priority and then you end up somewhat with a mesh of things. So these are a couple of things I've regularly seen and yeah, I feel I could help people with. That's really solid advice. The last one, the fourth one, I think is interesting because I haven't really heard about that one. The other three I've heard before. Interesting. Very cool. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. This has been awesome. What I really loved about our conversation so far is it's how practical it's been. So thank you for telling us how it really is. I think it's good. Okay, first quick fire question. What's your dream with the deadline? I don't have a clear deadline, but I have defined my OKRs for my life. So it's an objective, and you could say it's big five for life concept, but it's basically OKRs for life. You can even find those in my Medium article I wrote, the second one about like where I talk about self-reflection. And they are continuous goals. 
Of course, I have some numbers there, such as I would want to make 20 investments into startups that survive over a long time, have a significant positive impact in society, but there's no deadline to these things. And that's one of the other key results. I want to be maximum healthy with 90 so that I can still follow all my hobbies and passions and still contribute to my life goals with 90, as, maybe not as much as I do today, but still feel that I'm contributing towards these goals and I'm continuously reviewing those life goals or like once a year, I do a review on it and then I sometimes change things. So I have a more continuous approach to, to that. It's not like one big goal because otherwise like you've reached that at some point and then you're disappointed because then it's only going downwards. <laughs> yeah, so you look at it, you're like, what do Olympics. I do now? <laughs> gold yeah. medal in the Olympics is, can only get worse afterwards. I've heard, I've heard like people who are really successful in their careers early on and they have this one thing that they did so really well and later on, yeah, they get disappointed. So that kind of makes sense to me. Okay, question number two. What do you like about the work that you do now? It's inspiring people and helping people to find a passion, like enjoying what they're doing. I see so many people being not happy in their job, not happy in their life. There's no reason for that. There are a lot of people in the world that I'm very in, in very unfortunate situations and I can totally understand why they may, might not be happy. But in a kind of Western industry country world, there is no reason to be unhappy. It's just our inner self. Like it's, we need to be thankful and helpful. And I, I want to help people enjoy life, spread positive energy, be passionate about whatever they do. That's what I enjoy. Last question. What is next for Marcus. What is consuming your brain space right now? Unfortunately, it's not consuming enough of the brain space right now, but I want to start my own business again. I had a little business in my student time. It was a restaurant with a tablet-based ordering system, so tech and traditional business. And I really enjoyed it. And it was the foundation for many things I've done after. But I want to go back and run my own company. After like seven, eight years working for many other people, I want to work for myself and want to build a great culture, an impactful product, and I want to just enjoy time. Even if I would have at some point enough money, I would still want to continue on this thing. I'm trying to approach it on that. So if, even if money doesn't matter, I want to do the thing. Starting a company with people I really enjoy to spend time with and work on something that I find like interesting. That's really, that's really cool. I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with us today on Dreams with Deadlines, Marcus. It's been a joy to have you. Thank you, Jenny, for having me. And thank you for the very interesting questions. That's always helping me to reflect and think and like connect dots. Absolutely. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you like today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.